The reading for today comes from Esther, chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews, in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the twenty-third day. And an edict was written, according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors, and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script, and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Lord God, be with us now. Open, make your word live to us. Use your word to do to continue your work in us and be with the children and the youth downstairs and in the other room that you would use your word to make your face shine upon them. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Sam. I'm one of the team here and it's so good to see all of you here today. Especially warm welcome to family members of those who usually attend. Welcome. Thank you for bringing the sunshine to Vancouver. It's not always like this. <laughs> so, and they lived happily ever after. Queen, God used Queen Esther to rescue his people. Mordecai, her uncle, was honored by the king. 
And all of God's people had light and gladness and joy and honor. The Feast of Purim we read in in chapter 9 was to be celebrated every year to remember this joyous, miraculous salvation event. In summary, and they lived happily ever after. Yet another story of how God used someone to miraculously, miraculously save his people. But we already have so many of these stories, don't we? Why do we need another one? What does the book of Esther have to offer us other than just another happily ever after? Recently, our family has started reading books together um, by Roald Dahl. You know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, um, Danny the Champion of the World, Fantastic Mr. Fox. (laughs) The thing is, in many of the books we had read previously as a family, when the boys were younger, good and bad were clearly differentiated. We knew exactly who was good and who was bad, what was right and what was wrong. Often the clue was in the name, like the big bad wolf. (laughs) But then you come to books by Roald Dahl and suddenly good and bad are not so clearly differentiated. The moral landscape is not just black and white, it's grey. A boy, James, is looked after by cruel relatives. And, and, and then you have to explain to your boys, you can't trust every person in your family. Fantastic Mr. Fox steals from farmers to feed his hungry family. Danny's dad is a fantastic dad. But then he brings Danny to take revenge against an unpleasant neighbor by stealing pheasants from that neighbor and in the process, humiliating that neighbor. I don't know if you can feel my conflict. (laughs) As a parent on one hand, reading and then trying to, to help our boys make sense of this kind of moral landscape where everything is not just black and white, but there's so much gray is a real challenge. But on the other hand, that's the world we live in, isn't it? We we live in a world where sometimes, many times, there's no clear-cut right or wrong decision. Where good guys can do bad things and bad guys can do good things. And this is where the story of Esther really comes into its own. You see, the story of Esther teaches us how to live by faith in the kind of world that we live in. In a world of moral ambiguities and human imperfections. Now, as if you were concerned, I'm going to try and do go through everything in all nine chapters of Esther. Don't worry, we don't have time for that. But we're going to focus our time on the person of Esther. We've got three points this morning: faith and looking back, faith and looking forward, and faith and looking up. Faith and looking back, faith and looking forward and faith and looking up. So let's get started. Our first point, faith and looking back. So chapter one introduced for us the context of the story of Esther. God's people, the Jews, are living in exile in Persia and they are a religious and ethnic minority. King Ahasuerus is on the throne. He throws a feast and he summons his wife, Queen Vashti, to come before him just so that he can show off to his friends how beautiful his wife is. She refuses. 
He gets angry and removes her as queen. And as we go into chapter 2, the king is looking for a new queen. We're going to read chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. It's long, but I think it's really important that we, that we get through it because there's so much good stuff in here. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favour, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period for their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgez, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who, was, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, why do we go through all of this? We go through all of this because we need to see that there are many questions that we have, don't we? As we learn, as we go through the story of Esther, these passages, this passage alone raises all sorts of questions. She was beautiful and so was taken to spend one night with the king to see if she could be a potential queen. Did she go willingly or did she have no choice? And actually, do we really ever have no choice? 
Should she have resisted? Verse 10 stands out as well, doesn't it? And it's repeated later on in verse 20, so we know it's important. It says, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. The author wants us to know this. Esther hid her religion and her ethnicity from everyone else. This means that she lived like everyone else. There was nothing in her life to suggest that she was of a different religion. This meant that she probably broke all the religious rules. Any rule that would have made her stand out as different, she would have broken. And here's the question. Was Esther right to just submit to the commands of her uncle? Was Mordecai, her uncle, right to give these commands? Should Esther have just stood up for her beliefs and risked persecution? And then, and then we have this. Esther was taken to have sex with the king. They were not married. He was of a different religion. And both these things alone broke God's law. She did whatever was necessary to win favor enough that she might become queen. And we, and we, read, we, we read later on, when we read in chapter 8, that it was only from her position as queen that she was able to save her people. And therein lies the question, do the ends justify the means? This passage raises so many questions about Esther's character and her decision-making. And I think you would have noticed already, haven't you, that the author is frustratingly silent on these questions. And so for us as readers, we need to understand that the author's silence is not accidental. It's deliberate. And this needs to change the way that we understand what the author wants us to take away. Instead of trying to answer these questions we have by guessing Esther's motives, we need to see that the, the author is not answering these questions because these are not the questions the author wants to answer. And so these are not the questions we should be asking. You see, the author does not tell us if Esther's decisions were right or wrong because that's the point. God uses Esther to save his people regardless of whether her decisions were right or wrong or somewhere in between. And this is an important lesson for us today, isn't it? Karen Jobes is a scholar who's written a phenomenal commentary on, on the book of Esther. And if you want to find out you want to dig deeper, I highly recommend her commentary. She puts it this way, even if we make the wrong decision, whether through innocent blunder or deliberate disobedience, our God is so gracious and omnipotent, which means all-powerful, that he is able to use that weak link in a chain of events that will perfect his purposes in us and through us. Esther may have looked back on this episode of her life with shame and regret, or she may have looked back on it with a clear conscience knowing that she acted as wisely as she knew how at the time. In either case, every one of us also has both kinds of episodes in our lives. Esther's story shows that we can entrust them to the Lord and move on. Okay, we need to be clear here. I'm not saying that the ends justify the means. I'm not saying you should go and steal to feed the poor. I'm not saying that you should sacrifice your family and your integrity just so you can reach that position where you can finally do what, is, what needs to be done. I'm not saying that. That's another sermon or series of sermons for another day. 
what I am saying is that even when we do something wrong, our God is gracious. And He can use even our bad decisions for His good purposes. What does this mean for us practically? When we look back, and, and, we, and this, will ha- this is for all of us, when we look back on things that we have done or decided in the past, we all have things that we regret, don't we? Things that we shudder when we think about, things that we wish didn't happen. The story of Esther encourages us to break that cycle of regret and to move on. But to move on in faith, I'm not saying not to care about what's done in the past. When we have done what was wrong, we should repent. We should seek to make amends. But then we should receive God's mercy and forgiveness with thanksgiving. Often this will involve accepting the consequences of our actions. But then refusing to move on dwelling in regret, keeping ourselves trapped in the cycle of regret, continuing to second-guess ourselves and to beat ourselves up over the past, that is often a sign of a lack of faith. It's an understandable reaction because for various reasons, but it's a sign of a lack of faith, a sign that perhaps we don't believe that God has actually forgiven us. A sign of perhaps thinking that I need to do something more to forgive, to be forgiven. That, that Christ's work is not enough. Or not believing that God is powerful enough, or gracious enough, or merciful enough, or wise enough that He can use our mistake for His good purposes. Understanding this is so important, isn't it? Because the way we look back at our lives will impact the way we look forward. And that's our second point for this morning, faith and looking forward. You see, if we are haunted by regret when we look back, we will be paralyzed by a fear of regret moving forward. And then we'll be afraid of making decisions because we're going to be afraid of regretting those decisions. Again, I need to clarify, I'm not saying rush the decision. I'm not saying be reckless. Depending on the size of the decision, we need to spend an appropriate amount of time seeking God's will through His Word, by His Spirit, with His people. But even after that, while sometimes there may be a clear right or wrong answer, sometimes there won't. There will not be that clarity. It will not be so clear. It may be between a good and a better or a bad and a less bad. To paraphrase the great British philosopher, Jonathan Scott Briars, what might seem... (laughs) What might seem full of faith to one person might seem foolish to another. And what, what might seem like a lack of faith to one person might seem wise and prudent to another one. The point is this, in life, sometimes it isn't so clear what the right decision is. You could have done all the right things and it is not clear what you should do. But we, in that moment, we need to be, guard ourselves from being 
afraid of making decisions because often that fear is fueled by a lack of faith. I remember there was one time I, I there was a decision that I had to make and I, and I went to a trusted, a person that I really trusted and I said, I just laid it out, all out and what I wanted was an answer. <laughs> Sam, do this or Sam, do this. And to my great disappointment, he just said, Sam, I will pray for you. <laughs> you see, what I learned and what I am learning is that a lack of faith means thinking that there's only one scenario in which God can work out good in your life. A lack of faith means not believing that God is powerful enough or good enough to work out good when I don't make the most optimal decision. The book of Esther teaches us to combat our fear of regret, our fear of making the wrong decision with faith, with faith in God, because you don't have to make the perfect decision for God to use you for good. Let me give a, a personal application some of the decisions that I struggle with most are decisions that I know will impact my children. And I struggle with it because my fear is that I, I fear making a decision that will ruin them forever. <laughs> that's going to set them down a path where they're just going to fail. <laughs> and it's going to be all my fault. All those in my, my community group <laughs> will recognize the prayer requests that I often have. <laughs> all my kid-related requests. See, what this passage has taught me is that while my impulse to be a diligent and responsible parent is good, I need to combat my fear, my lack of faith by asking, do I trust God? Do I trust that God is powerful enough, that He is good enough to look out for my children? Do I, do I believe that he loves them more than I can love them? Jody Eck, who's one of the, our biblical counselors at Christ City, has written a fantastic article where, where she reflects on the book Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. She writes this reflection, or part of this is her reflection. Do you see how practical trusting God becomes when we exercise faith in him? We can call out to him when facing difficulty, ask and look for solutions that he's providing, and then trust that he's working in and through any difficulty or suffering. We can seek godly counsel in making plans for our lives, but then trust that our plans are still under his sovereign will and, therefore, not worry about the outcome. You can read the rest of this article on our website, and I highly recommend this to everyone. So, as we look forward, we need to combat our fear of regret, our fear of making the wrong decision with faith in God. The other thing that we need to combat is our fear of inadequacy, our fear of not being good enough, which brings us to chapter 4 of Esther. For context, after Esther has been made queen, a royal decree is made to destroy all the Jews. Esther's uncle, Mordecai, comes to the king's gate in tears after he's found out about the decree. And Esther sends a eunuch named Hathak to find out what happened. And we pick up the story in chapter 4, verse 6. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman 
who's the bad guy, had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he might live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let me summarize what we've just read. The Jews are under threat. Mordecai asks Esther to appeal to the king on behalf of her people. Esther tells Mordecai she doesn't want to go. She doesn't want to go to the king because anyone who goes to the king without permission has the very real chance of not coming back out, of being executed. Eventually, she agrees to risk her life, but only after Mordecai says that even if she doesn't go, her life is under risk anyway. Is Mordecai giving her kind, fatherly advice? Or is he threatening her? And when it comes to Esther, again, we're left with more questions than answers about her motives, aren't we? Did Esther go to the king to save her people or to save herself? Did she go willingly or did she go because she had no choice? The answer is probably all of the above. And I don't know about you, but I personally find Esther's mixed motives actually quite comforting. Because my motives are always mixed. My heart is usually divided. See, I want to be a good employee, but I also want the prestige of a promotion. I want to be a good friend, but I also want everyone to know that I am a good friend. I want to be a good parent, but I also don't really mind the comfort and convenience of my kids doing exactly what I tell them to do. Scripture reminds us what we already know by experience, doesn't it? That we all have mixed motives. The good mixed with the sinful. The selfless mixed with the selfish. And when we're confronted by the sin in our hearts, it's so tempting to feel inadequate. To feel that we're not good enough for God to use us. Let Esther be a comfort 
to us. Because just as God used Esther despite her mixed motives, God can, has, and will use you in spite of your mixed motives. You see, you don't have to be perfect for God to use you, but also know this, others don't have to be perfect for God to use them. As a a side note, may this change the way that we look at imperfections we see in others. May we guard ourselves from categorizing people into completely good or completely bad. And may we have mercy for those who may have done wrong against us. Living by faith means as we look forward, we combat our fear of regret, our fear of making the wrong decision with faith that God can use even our bad decisions for good. Looking forward by faith also means we combat our fear of inadequacy, our fear of not being good enough with faith that God can use us, even with our mixed motives for good. You see, the story of Esther teaches us to combat our fear with faith, but it also teaches us something about faith itself, doesn't it? The turning point in the story of Esther stands out for all of us. That beautiful moment when Esther chooses faith over fear. When she decides she's going to commit, she's going to identify with her people, with God's people. You see, up to this point, as we've already seen, Esther has kept her identity hidden. Scholars point out that she's the only one in this whole narrative with two names. We saw this in chapter 2. A Hebrew name, Hadassah, and a Persian name, Esther. Two names that reflect, some scholars suggest, the identity crisis that she's facing underneath. Because she's caught between two worlds, the Gentile world of the pagan court that she lives and works in, and the Jewish world of God's people that she grew up in. Up to now, as we've seen, for whatever reason, she's managed to avoid revealing her identity. She's managed to hide from everyone else that she's one of God's people, but now she's met with a fork in the road. And there's no in-between. She has to choose. She's either God's people or she's not. She's not half a God's person. And the moment she chooses faith over fear to identify as one of God's people, to risk everything, to save God's people, everything changes. And we we saw it in chapter 4, didn't we? Midway through, a completely different Esther emerges. She goes from cowardice to courage, from timidity to boldness, from indecision to decisive, bold, courageous action. Look at verse 15 again. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish... I perish. If I perish, I perish. (laughs) We saw it in Ruth last week and we see it in Esther again this week. Faith is all in. Faith is a yes or no question. At some point, we will all have to choose. 
whether we commit and identify as God's people or we don't. And we need to ask ourselves the question this morning, Christ City, are, are you caught living between two worlds? The world of the Sunday and the world of the every other day. Do you, have you committed, have you put your faith in, do people, can people see that you're one of God's people? Perhaps, for some of us, the honest answer is no. And I tell you what, I thank God for your honesty. I thank God that you are aware enough of where you stand with God. And can I also say this? If, if, if this is you, can I just say that from personal experience, becoming a Christian is the best decision you could ever make in your life because it's the decision that will save your life. And as much as it would serve you, if you want to talk about it, if you have questions, talk to the person you came with. Or if you want to talk to someone else, you can come talk to me, come talk to any of the elders or any of the staff and we would love to walk with you through this. For some of us here, perhaps, you are a Christian and everyone else knows you're a Christian and praise God for that. But there are other of us but there are others of us here who we would say we're a Christian, but for whatever reason, you have so hidden your faith from others that no one knows you're a Christian. The story of Esther reminds us that one day we will all have to come to the fork in the road. We cannot hide our Christian faith forever because faith is not just in what we say, it's how we live. Faith is asking God what He would have us do and then doing what He calls us to do. Because there is no greater joy than living into the calling that God has for us. Even if it means everyone else finding out who we truly are, perhaps because it means everyone else finding out who we truly are. Christ City, what is God calling you to do? At home, at school, at work, in your neighbourhood, with your family, with your friends. May Mordecai's words to Esther ring in our ears. Who knows whether you have not come to, a position, to this position for such a time as this. Who knows whether you have not come to this position for such a time as this. For whatever reason you are in the position you are, this is the position you are in. But even as I say this, I know one of the reasons why many of us want to hide the fact we're Christian is the same reason I want to hide it. It's because what if I misrepresent God? What if they look at me and go, I don't want to be that kind of Christian? Know this. It's not perfection that is expected from us. It is faithfulness. It is not an artificial front. It's an authentic view for others to see not our perfection, but how a perfect God works His perfection in us. And we can't do this on our own, which brings us to the third point, and I'm going to keep it brief, faith and looking up. 
See, the point of this story is not that we should try to be exactly like Esther. Now, I don't want to downplay Esther's role and her sacrifice. There is so much in Esther for us to admire and look up to. There are many, many things that she did that we should learn from, like her courage, her willingness to risk her life, her willingness to use her position of influence to save God's people and to serve Him. There is much we can learn, but that's not the main point. The main point of the story is this. In, in some ways, in many ways, we are all like Esther. We will make good and bad decisions. We will struggle with mixed motives because even while we are saints, we will still sin. You see, even as we learn to look back and look forward in faith, we must also look up. Look up to the one we put our faith in, to the one who is faithful, to the one who saves us, imperfect as we are, and uses us for his good purposes. Because it's not the quality of our faith, it's the faithfulness of the one we put our faith in. Christ City, know this, it is not how well you can hold fast to God is that our God holds fast to you. It's not the perfection of our motives, it's the saving grace of our loving, merciful, gracious Savior. And so imperfect as we are, we can trust God. Trust that everything will work out for good because that good depends not on me but on Him. Because of the one he sent who is better and greater than Esther. The one who is the greatest good we will ever need. And the one through whom we can have the greatest good we could ever want. Christ City, as we live by faith, as we look back and look forward, don't forget to look up. Look up to Jesus. You see, Jesus did not just risk his life to save his people. He gave up his life to save his people. While Esther risked her position in the kingdom, Jesus gave up his life to invite everyone into his kingdom. While God used Esther despite her sin, God used Jesus because he had no sin. So that he might save and pay the price for all our sins. You see, on the cross, our sinless Savior took the judgment for every shameful thing we've ever done or ever will do. For every sinful deed, decision, and hidden desire we've ever had, that we might be free. That we might be free and transformed and empowered to live by faith as we look back, as we look forward, and as we look up. So if you're haunted by your past, and I know some of us are, if you're paralyzed in the present, and I know some of us are, and if you're fearful for the future, live by faith. Look up and put your faith in Christ, looking forward to the day when we will be with Him forever, in the true happily ever after. We're going to do something a bit different. I'd like to give us a moment to do business with God on our own. I realize this is a, 
a lesson that hits home for many of us. And so like, I'd like to give us just a minute or so to come before God on our own. Is there something that you're haunted by in your past? Something you're paralyzed by in the present? Or something you're fearful about in the future? Let's stand as we respond to God's word.